What if I were to tell you our conscious thoughts and resultant actions are not a reflection of simple sensory inputs, such as air temperature as we step outside or the sight of an eagle flying overhead? Instead, it is how we feel about those sensory inputs that drives our complex decisions and actions. Your response to an external input may very well differ significantly from mine. Not because we have a different sense of smell, touch, sight, sound, or taste, but because we feel differently about those sensory inputs. When it comes to health, wellness, and performance, that's a pretty big deal. Welcome to the latest episode of the Catalyst 360 Podcast, your trusted resource for engaging evidence-based health, wellness, and performance insights. I'm your host, Dr. Brad Cooper of Catalyst Coaching 360. Today's guest is Dr. Mark Solms, one of the boldest thinkers in contemporary neuroscience and the author of the fascinating book, The Hidden Spring, A Journey to the Source of Consciousness. I think you'll find today's discussion will open your eyes about the way in which the brain functions in everyday life and change your understanding about your subjective experiences. And yes, as always, we'll focus on the practical, evidence-based elements that will help us all bolster our health, wellness, and performance, or potentially that of our clients, coworkers, and peers. On the coaching front, if you're looking to earn your MBHWC-approved coach certification, our next certification cohort group kicks off in just a few weeks. Please reach out at your convenience and we can talk through all your questions and whether it's the right fit for your future life and career plans. Email results at catalystcoachinginstitute.com or 720-339-4292. That's results at catalystcoachinginstitute.com or the phone number 720-339-4292. And now it's time to tap into the hidden spring of our consciousness with Dr. Mark Solms on the latest episode of the Catalyst 360 podcast. Dr. Solms, welcome to the show. It's an honor to have you here. We've been talking about doing this for a while. Welcome to the Catalyst 360 podcast. Thanks very much. I'm, I'm delighted to be here. Let's set the stage for our discussion with a little bit of context. In everyday language, could you help us understand some of the basics about how often the confused role of the cerebral cortex and the brain stem and the roles that they play in our daily lives. It's a lot of phrases that people maybe hear in conversations or seeing a book, but they're like, I have no idea what they're talking about. Can you give us some context there? Yep, sure. It's entirely understandable uh, given the nature of our conscious experience, which is dominated primarily by visual perception. But if not vision, then other things that we experience around us, um, hearing, touching, smelling, tasting, that those are the raw ingredients of consciousness. Yes. And so um, it's perfectly reasonable that we assumed that consciousness is constituted uh, from sensory inputs. And then as we, over the years, gradually got to understand uh, where those sensory inputs come from, uh, you know, interfacing the nerves to the sensory end organs, and then tracing them in the other direction to the brain. Um, the, they, they project to various parts of the brain, but by far the most impressive uh, uh, destination of all of this sensory input is the cortex. Um, and the cortex is also impressive in that it is such a large part of our human brains. Mm -hmm. In other words, um, as you ascend the the mammal series, if you will, if you consider us to be at the top of the series, as we have over the centuries considered ourselves to be, you know, uh, we have the most cortex. Uh, if you compare the amount of cortex we have to other primates and to and to other mammals, it's it sets us apart. So, you know, we human beings uh, have all of this cortex and the cortex is where all of this sensory information goes to. So it was only natural to think, well, this must be the organ of consciousness, the, the cortex. Uh, all the more so, uh, what made it uh, reasonable was if different parts of the cortex are damaged, the part that the visual fibers project to, for example, if that's damaged, you go blind. Uh, uh, if the part that uh, your, your, your somatic sensation, skin and uh, you know, touch and so on, uh, the part that that projects to, if that's damaged, you become anesthetic on that side. In other words, you don't feel anything. So the consciousness that goes with these different sensory modalities um, is literally mapped onto the cortex. 
that's how we saw it since we worked all of this out, which was roughly the end of the 19th century. Then came a very big surprise in the middle of the 20th century. Um, Two physiologists, Magoon and Maruzzi, uh, despite the the names, they're Americans. uh, And uh, they they, um, were doing some experiments on cats. Um, The basic uh, background to what they were doing was the assumption that if you deprive a, a cat of all of its sensory inputs, it will lose consciousness because consciousness flows in through sure. your senses right. uh, on the basis of what I've just said. And I say again, it's perfectly reasonable that you would expect this and the evidence was entirely consistent with it. Um, so they expected these cats would fall asleep um, and if not fall, you know, possibly even fall into a coma, they would lose consciousness. But that is not what happened. Uh, if you deprive cats um, of their all of their sensory inputs, and indeed, if you remove all of their sensory cortex, um, indeed, if you remove all of their cortex altogether, they do not lose consciousness. And this doesn't apply only to cats, but this is where it began. And um, even more interesting was that Magoon and Maruzzi found that there was another part of the brain which, if it's damaged, does lead to loss of consciousness. And that part of the brain was not the cortex at all. Uh, it was the brain stem, which is, which is, as the word stem implies, you know, it's sort of the lowest level of the brain. It's the part of the brain that connects the cortex with the spinal cord. You know, so it's, it's one step above the spinal cord. It's sort of the first part of the brain right. that deserves to be called brain, right. as opposed to, you know, the more peripheral parts of the nervous system. So uh, if you damage just a little area there, and Magoon and Maruzzi uh, um, already learned that, now we know that all you need to damage is an area the size of a match head. If it's located in the right part of the brainstem, the size of a match head is enough to produce a coma. Uh, And what Magoon and Maruzzi also showed is that if you disconnect the cortex from this part of the brainstem, then uh, there's all of this cortical consciousness that I was talking about earlier, all of this perception of the outside world, uh, visual, auditory, somatic sensation, all of it, uh, all of those lights are turned out. So what that demonstrated were two, two big surprises. The one is that consciousness does not flow in from the outside because even if you deprive the animal of all of that consciousness and the organ that receives that that information, it doesn't lose consciousness. And secondly, that consciousness is generated from the inside. Uh, And in fact, the consciousness that's generated from the inside, from the brain stem, this most primitive lowly part of the brain, that this sort of turns on the lights of the cortex. Mm. The cortex can only become conscious if it's activated from below. And that's why they came up with the name reticular activating system for that part of the brainstem. That's the other word that you just used, reticular activating system. This is the system that was discovered by Magoon and Maruzzi. So um, the, 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 I need to emphasize again, this is not controversial. Uh, since, since the middle of the 20th century, it was realized that all of what the cortex does consciously uh, is contingent upon activation by the reticular activating system, by the brainstem. So we had to think about consciousness completely differently from then onwards. Um, But there have been further discoveries since then, which I'll be happy to go into, which make it even more, uh, you know, makes us realize even more how radical and dramatic were the consequences of what Magoon and Maruzzi discovered in the mid-20th century. The, The idea that consciousness is endogenously generated from within the brain is a, is a very important fact. You, you note early in your book, and I've got it sitting right here. Fascinating. I, confession to make on this. I picked it up on a recommendation from one of our other guests, and I thought, this is a big book. It's pretty deep. I could not set it down. You note early in your book that we're unaware of most of what we perceive and learn. We're, let me say that again. We're unaware of most of what we perceive and learn and that these are not conscious brain functions that most, and I'm quoting you here, moment-to-moment 
psychological life carries on without conscious experience. What do you mean by all that? And and how does that relate? We're very practical in this podcast. How does that relate to everyday life for us? Okay, well, let me start by emphasizing that this too is not controversial. So, so these are just things that people don't sufficiently, right. we don't pay attention to exactly. them. We don't think through the implications, but, but uh, neither of the two things that you've asked me to talk about so far are controversial. Number one, the thing I said earlier, that nobody disputes that without reticular activating system arousal of the cortex, uh, it, 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 the cortex is incapable of producing consciousness. The second thing, the point you've just made now, uh, that most of our mental activity carries on unconsciously is also not controversial. It once was uh, when it was first, when the, this idea was first introduced more than a hundred years ago. By Freud, it was. It was considered an oxymoron to speak of mental functions that are unconscious because everybody knew that mental meant conscious. And so what Freud meant then, and I'll start with him and then extrapolate to what we know now, what Freud meant then was to say, well, when you speak of mental functions, presumably that includes things like seeing, hearing, remembering what you've seen and heard, and making decisions and executing those decisions and monitoring, making sure that what you plan to do is what you, all of those things are mental functions. So uh, if they are, if those are mental functions, and if you can show that those things can happen without you being aware that they're happening, uh, then, you know, you have to conclude that there's a part of the mind that that's, that's unconscious. The methods that Freud used in order to uh, uh, demonstrate the truth of that statement were pretty rough and ready methods. And so not everyone was persuaded by them. <laughs> uh, but the methods that we have today, uh, for example, uh, you, you can. I'm just using one among many examples. Uh, in, in fact, let me spell this example out for for, for a couple of moments. Uh, there's a there's a there's an apparatus called a tachistoscope, um, which what boils it boils down to this that it flashes information to you visually. You look into this thing. Uh, it's you know you look you look like into the uh, as as if on, into a screen with with goggles, and uh, information is flashed onto that screen. Uh, it flashed through your eyes to your brain. Uh, but the point of the tachistoscope is that you can reduce the speed with which the information is presented down to milliseconds so that at a certain mm. point, you are no longer You don't even uh, know aware. it's there. Yeah. yeah. You're no longer aware of what you have seen. You might see a flash, but you won't know what it is. And then you go faster than that. And eventually you don't even see a flash. So, uh, and we call that zero prime. So at that point, the person is not only unaware of the content of what they're seeing, they're unaware that they're seeing anything at all. So that is no visual consciousness, in other words. Um, and, but, but there is information. We know objectively that we're flashing information. So in, in, I'm just giving you one example of one experiment, but there are billions sure, of experiments sure. like this. On, on this. In this one experiment, um, the... The research participant is shown two faces, face A and face B. Uh, and under face A, the word is printed rapist. And under face B, the word that is printed is philanthropist. And now the, the person doesn't know they're seeing anything at all, but we know they're seeing these two faces with those, with those different words written under them. After this information is flashed to the research participant, they're then shown those two faces consciously, shown photographs of face A and face B, and asked, which of these two guys do you prefer? And they say, I, I have no basis for preferring either one of them. I've never met them before. So the experimenter says, yes, but you know, just use your gut feeling. You know, just intuitively, which one of these guys do you prefer? And with a very high degree of statistical uh, uh, significance, people choose face B. And when asked why, they say, I don't know why. You asked me to just you know, go with right. my gut feeling. Right. I, 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 I don't like that guy, face A. I do like this guy, face B. So there we have evidence, um, experimental evidence of a kind that Freud could never have drawn upon. Sure. Uh, that you can see unconsciously. You can not only see, you can recognize a face. Uh, you can read 
unconsciously and you can read with comprehension and you can associate what you've read with that face. And that will affect your subsequent behavior, um, even though you were not conscious of any of that. I had no idea. But this is what we mean by mental activity that goes on unconsciously. And now there's reviews of that of that experimental literature. Um, perhaps uh, the, the, the best known reviews are one by John Kilstrom, and the other one is by Barge and Chartrand. These are the two sort of classical reviews of the literature. And they conclude not, in fact, what you just read there was me quoting uh, from Barge and Chartrand. Um, what, what they conclude is not that we can uh, 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 do these kinds of things, these kind of mental things unconsciously, but that we do it most of the time. In fact, 95% of our goal-directed mental activity carries on unconsciously. And that's just wow. astonishing. Uh, the, the, the title of the review by uh, Baja and Chartan, the title of the paper is The Unbearable Automaticity of Being, which I think is a wonderful title, which sort of conveys the essence of it. So I just want to link this point though, to the first point you raised with me, uh, which is the following, that only the cortex can recognize faces and only the cortex can read. You know, these are uniquely cortical uh, perceptual functions. So what that shows is that the cortex can do its job. It can do things like recognize faces and read words and commit the, the, the results to memory um, and do it all without any consciousness attached. Now, when you link this uh, you know, with what I said about where the consciousness consciousness seems actually to come from is from the reticular activating system. That's a very important conjunction. What what we're saying is that the cortex is not the it's not the source of consciousness. It's not intrinsically conscious. It, it borrows its consciousness, as it were, from the reticular activating system. Uh, and when the reticular activating system is not arousing the cortex then the cortex still carries on doing its cortical things, but it does them unconsciously. Uh, that's the, that's the, the take-home message of these two things that you and I have just been talking about, is that the cortex is not an intrinsically con conscious organ, uh, that the consciousness comes from elsewhere. And when, when, that, when that elsewhere is not supplying consciousness, then it carries on functioning, but it functions unconsciously. That that's, uh, has radical implications for our understanding of how the mind works. All right. So feeling is the exception. Feeling is conscious. And, and you're wording about that. They irrigate the dead soil of unconscious representations and bring them to mental life. Wow. That's a vivid statement, my friend. Uh, why is that finding so important? Okay. So here I said to you earlier, that it's not controversial that the reticular activating system is the source of consciousness. And uh, I also said to you, it's not controversial uh, that the cortex is capable of performing all of its cognitive gymnastics unconsciously. Uh, the, the part that you've touched on now is controversial. Uh, I don't think it should be because the evidence <laughs> is overwhelming, uh, but I just need to make sure that you know our audience knows that this is the part where they're listening to me speaking, as opposed to conventional wisdom. Uh, in relation to the other two things, I have placed emphasis on things which are undisputed. Now, now I'm saying something which, uh, oddly enough, is disputed, but uh, it shouldn't be. What I'm, what I'm about to say is that the reticular activating system, when it was discovered, the way that we conceptualized, I mean, the mainstream of neuroscience, the way that we conceptualized the relationship between reticular activating brainstem and cortex was something like the relationship between a power supply and a television set. Uh, a television set can't work unless it's plugged in at the wall. You know, uh, that doesn't mean that really television comes from the power source. Uh, uh, that, that, that's, that was the way that it was understood. So it was said, well, of course, the power source is a prerequisite for the television set to do its televisual thing. But it's really the television set that's doing this, this, uh, this uh, complicated, uh, 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 intricate business of receiving a signal and projecting it onto a screen. Now, uh, that's the view that's prevailed since the middle of the 20th century. And the, the, the evidence 
uh, is mounting against that view. And I'll just quickly uh, uh, run through that evidence. First of all, if it were true that all that the reticular activating system is providing is a power source, which I, which I, sorry, I, th- I should have said this more clearly. This is the, the the phrase that's used is that it provides a quantitative level of consciousness. It doesn't provide quality and it doesn't provide content. Okay. So the argument is that this power supply, the reticular activating system, provides a quantitative level of sort of background arousal, which has no content and no quality. That's the standard view. So now here's the evidence against that view. Uh, if you look at, I told you that with animals like cats, and sadly it's been done with many animals, neonate cats, neonate rats, neonate mice, uh, we, I, I take responsibility in that it's my colleagues, neuroscientists, uh, we remove the cortex to see what happens. And what happens is that the, the, they behave perfectly, um, you know, consciously. They wake up in the morning, they go to sleep at night, they do all sorts of things like like run around, uh, 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 stalk their prey, um, pounce on it, um, play with each other, hang from bars, uh, copulate with each other. Uh, they're, they're even capable of giving birth to children. I mean, baby, baby rats, baby mice, baby kittens. Uh, and rear, they rear them, not perfectly, but they rear them to maturity. So all of this sort of behavior, uh, please note it's instinctual, emotional behavior, uh, is possible uh, in the absence of cortex. So it's, you know, this is the kind of thing that makes you start wondering, well, hang on, you know, it's not just blank wakefulness. They're, they're not just lying there in some kind of staring, you know, into right. into, into, into a, a contentless, qualitatively blank experience. They're doing all these emotional things. My, my colleague, Jörg Pankset, frequently got his graduate students. Uh, he, he showed them two groups of, of rats one group had no cortex, the other group had cortex. And he said, which group has been operated on? And they always got it the wrong way around. And the reason they got it the wrong way around, when they were asked to explain, but why do you think that these rats are conscious, or the ones that have cortex, is that the students say, because they're more lively. And, and this points to the fact they're actually more emotional uh, are, the, are the, the animals without cortex. Now, those are animals. The same applies to human beings. Of course, you can't do that kind of ghoulish experiment. Uh, it's questionable sure. whether it should be done on any creature. You could, most certainly will never get permission to do it on a human being, nor should you. But many, sadly, many children are born with no cortex. It's a condition called hydranencephaly. Uh, if the, if, if the, the prediction from the theory that the, the brainstem is just a power source and that it, the consciousness generated there has no content and no quality. If that if that were correct, the prediction would be these kids would be, if not in a coma, then in what is called a vegetative state. Uh, in other words, they, they are, the only kind of consciousness they have is that they wake up in the morning and go to sleep at night, but their consciousness has no content, it has no quality. There's a kind of blank wakefulness that's superseded by sleep and then a blank wakefulness. That's what the vegetative state is. It's called non-responsive wakefulness. And please note the word non-responsive. You know, So with these kids, you would predict, if that theory is correct, that they would be non-responsive. They would wake up in the morning, go to sleep at night, but otherwise, you know, there'd be nobody home. And that's not what happens. What happens is the same as what you see in the rats and the cats. Uh, these kids are emotionally responsive. They laugh, they cry. Um, you know, they 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 play. Uh, they enjoy some things. They they dis they, they dislike other things. Uh, and 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 it's not just that they show this range of basic emotions. It's that they show them in situationally appropriate ways. Mm. Like you put the baby brother of such a child onto her lap, and she goes ah, she likes it. You know, you take the baby brother away, she goes ah 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 ah. She wants him back again. You know, you give her a fright clap your hands, she startles, and so on. So this is not blank wakefulness. This is not contentless. This is not without quality. Uh, but the crucial thing is that the, the content and quality that we're talking about is the thing you mentioned that got me off on telling you all of this, which is feelings. These kids, they don't, they can't recognize faces and read words. They can't speak They've got no cortex. So they're all these cognitive things they can't do. 
uh, that's, I, I must emphasize, these kids are by no means normal, uh, but they're conscious and they're conscious emotionally. Um, and so what this suggests to us is that the brain stem, the reticular activating system, is not supplying blank wakefulness. It's not supplying a pure level or quantity um, of arousal, that this arousal has quality and it has content. And the content is, is what we call affective. That's a technical term for something like emotional feeling. And, uh, and, and that's really important. So the, the, the cortex, the, the, the prerequisite, please remember, it's prerequisite for all other kinds of consciousness. So the cortex can't do its job uh, unless it's activated from the so-called power source. And it turns out that the so-called power source is, in fact, generating a, a consciousness with a quality and a content. That quality is affective. Feelings like fear and rage and separation, distress, uh, and, and, and all of these you know, uh, 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 joys and sorrows, uh, the, the, these kids don't know what their feelings are about. Uh, I, I emphasize again, they can't form conscious pictures. They can't form words. Uh, but they just have the raw feelings, and those feelings guide their behavior. Some of our listeners might think, well, that's just one bit of evidence. You know, the cortex is missing. You don't really know. Maybe these kids are just acting by reflex or by instinct. Um, and so I, I hasten to add that that's not the only evidence that we've got for this. Um, I'll just rattle through some of the other evidence. Um, if you stimulate the reticular activating system with an electrode, and, and for some clinical conditions, we do need to go in there surgically, and so we know what happens. If you stimulate these nuclei in the deep primitive brainstem that, that constitute the reticular activating system, it doesn't just make the patient either wake up or go to sleep. Uh, it, it, it makes them have specific and intense feelings, intense fears, intense uh, rages, uh, intense despairs, uh, you know, these uh, uh, orgiastic delights uh, included, you know, all kinds of basic instinctual, uh, biological, emotional feelings. You can stimulate those artificially by stimulating the reticular activating system. So the, 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 these are patients who have normal cortex, you know, who therefore can report to you on what they're feeling. And this is what they report. Um, if you take scans positron emission tomography uh, of people in intense emotional states. And you ask yourself, as you can with such scans, which part of the brain is activated when the person is in, in intense joy versus intense sadness versus intense rage versus intense fear. You find there are four different parts of the brain that are activated in those four different emotional states, but they all of them are in the brainstem. So again, uh, what you would expect if the brainstem is actually activating uh, uh, is the actual source, is the actual where this quality and content is coming from, you would expect that you can trigger it by stimulating those structures, and you can. You would expect that you can picture those structures being aroused when you see the person is in those intense states, and they are. Uh, I'll just add one more thing, which is that the neurotransmitters uh, that that are sourced in those reticular activating nuclei. In other words, the chemicals that are produced by those nuclei are the very chemicals that we direct our psychiatric medications at. Mm. In, 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 like, for example, serotonin, which is so famous in relation to antidepressants. Um, antidepressants, you increasing the level of serotonin in the brain. Serotonin is sourced uh, in the reticular activating system. The same applies to dopamine, which we target with, with antipsychotic medications. The same applies to noradrenaline, as we call it. You guys call it norepinephrine. Um, it's sourced in the reticular activating system. You, 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 Anti-anxiety drugs are directed at that. So the drugs that are the mainstay of modern psychopharmacology act on the neurotransmitters that are sourced in the reticular activating system. If the reticular activating system was just producing this background wakefulness, then you might think it will be of interest to anesthetists, uh, but it wouldn't explain why it's of interest to psychiatrists. The, the reason it's of interest to psychiatrists is because uh, the, these are the source of our emotional feelings. And so the, just to sum up everything that I'm saying, you know, the evidence is overwhelming 
that the reticular activating system doesn't just switch on the power supply. Uh, it, it, it powers up the, the cortex with feeling, uh, with emotional feeling. And that, that means that all of our cognitive forms of consciousness are predicated upon these more basic emotional forms of consciousness, which means we have to think about consciousness in a very different way uh, from, from how we have uh, uh, previously. And, you know, it's not that surprising when you think about it, that if you think about it in evolutionary terms, consciousness doesn't start with things like reading and, and you know, and having complex philosophical thoughts. It starts with much more basic elementary forms of consciousness. And I am submitting that the most basic form of consciousness is simply raw feeling, that the dawn of consciousness involved an animal, you know, a simple creature becoming aware that it's too hot or that it's thirsty or that it's in pain or that it's hungry and that this guided its behavior um, and guided its behavior in a way that transcends reflexes. If, if all that you have is reflexes, then everything is automatic. Uh, and and there are certainly creatures that function that way, but but look at what a huge adaptive advantage it is if you don't have to rely only on reflexes. Because if the animal then finds itself in an unpredicted situation, a novel situation uh, where its reflexes don't cut it, right, in other right. words, they, they don't they don't help it to to get the things that it needs, uh, then it can feel its way through the problem, and that's that that is this enormous advantage. What's going well? What's going badly? In terms of it, it, that's what underwrites choice. It's what makes one thing better and another thing worse in terms of voluntary action. And that I think is the basic function of consciousness. All of the rest of it is built on top of that. So you led into my next question perfectly. This this sense of feeling then dictates our actions. It, it shifts us from automatic to chosen. A lot of what we talk about in the whole health, wellness, and performance area depends on making positive choices. So is there an opportunity in what you're saying to make more positive choices in our lives? Yeah. And uh, so I've said to you, the first thing I said, it's not controversial. Brainstem's the source of consciousness. Second one, uh, not controversial. The, the cortex is not intrinsically conscious. You know, most of what it does is unconscious. The third thing, which is controversial, but as I've said to you, the evidence is overwhelming, that actually the foundations of consciousness are feeling, uh, you know, affective feelings, uh, things that are pleasurable and unpleasurable in a variety of ways. Uh, the Although that's controversial, just stop and pause and think about what you've just said. Uh, you said that much of what you, uh, you know, p- people who are interested in well-being and wellness and so on, you know, they focus on feeling. And, and then you think, well, bloody hell, of course. What else would you focus on? <laughs> what is well-being if not, you know, a feeling? Um, and, and what is its opposite uh, if not a feeling? Our patients suffer from feelings. Um, and they come to us, you know, wanting to be relieved of feelings that they're suffering from. And when I say our patients, I don't only mean psychiatric patients. If you think about it, actually, all patients, uh, they come to doctors because they've got tummy aches or headaches or, you know, uh, sore back or whatever. You know, feelings are bloody important things. Uh, They convey to us how well or badly we're doing within a value system. That value system is the value system that underwrites the whole of life, namely that it is good to survive and bad to die. You know, so... Um, feelings ultimately, a pleasurable feeling means this is good for you. And an unpleasurable feeling, if I can put it in that, in that clumsy way, the opposite of a pleasurable feeling, um, it, it, it means this is bad for you. you know. And that, this is the, the, the basic value system that guides all of our behavior. And it's, I say again, it's not, it shouldn't be surprising. You know, it's, uh, what could be more obviously true? That we are seeking pleasures and avoiding pains of the of the various kinds, um, and it's it's not some kind of hedonism. Uh, it's actually a very wholesome, uh, you know, uh, uh, rooted in uh, the, the the our entire evolutionary history that the things that feel good uh, feel good for good reasons, and the things that feel bad feel bad for good reasons. And um, now comes the really interesting part. 
um, is that, of course, that's true. Everything I've just said must be true. And, and, and therefore, we have every, you know, the gu- gu- guiding our behavior uh, by feelings um, is, in other words, being aware. How does this make me feel? Is, am I, does this make me feel better? Does this make me feel worse? You know, obviously, that's a good way to live your life. All of us, in fact, do live our lives that way. Scientifically, what's interesting beyond that obvious step is to say, well, then, you know, it's not just good versus bad. There's such a great variety of goodnesses and badnesses. So I mentioned things like, you know, like pain and hunger and sleepiness and so on. These announce bodily needs, uh, you know, and uh, but what about our emotional needs? Uh, You know, those two are deeply biological. Fear just means you're in danger, you know, uh, uh, separation distress means for us mammals, it means, you know, you, you need to be looked after and, you know, your, your caregiver is, you're no longer with her. You better find her. Um, and rage just means something is getting between you and what you need. You've got to get rid of that thing. Otherwise you're not going to get your share. And then, you know, you're going to cop it in all of those cases. You're going to die. If you don't escape dangers, uh, 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 stay close to your caregivers, uh, get rid of uh, adversaries who are preventing you from getting your share. Uh, if you don't do those things, you've had it. So these are the basic emotions, and they're equally biological. And these are the stuff of our of our human lives. The feelings like sadness and 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 sexual desires and and angers and 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 so on. And so the fact that we now have a scientific grip on what these basic emotional needs are is terribly important for understanding what the innate values are you know of the human being and thankfully some of them that we've discovered in recent years are you know are, are good news like for example there is an innate nurturing drive you know that we we need to look after little vulnerable ones um, you know, and, and when I say that, of course, biologically, you realize, well, that's no surprise either. Of course, you know, we have to look after our offspring. And um, and uh, there's, an, there's a drive to play. Can you believe that? Uh, that mammals need to play. It's not, it's not, it looks like such frivolous nonsense, but we absolutely need to play. And play is a very pro-social thing. It's fun and you have to do it together with others and, you know, and so on. So it's, all of this is very important knowledge. Uh, although I want to just add one dark side of it in case some of our listeners are thinking, well, you know, uh, yes, I'm trying to guide my life by feelings, but it's not as easy as this guy's saying. Um, well, the important thing here is that feelings, these emotional needs conflict with each other. So, for example, you know, you might, not might, you do. Every little mammal, and that's us when we're born, Every little mammal needs to be looked after. Mammals cannot look after themselves. They have to be, they have to be cared for. And uh, so we need to keep our caregivers close to us. We also, I mentioned earlier, we have a rage drive. In other words, we need to get rid uh, of, of things that frustrate us. Now, whose mother never frustrated them? <laughs> so there you've got a conflict. Well, you got uh, you know, right from on. the beginning, right, right from the beginning of life. It's like, you know, this. The, the same person who you depend on, you know, sometimes, you know, you, you, you really can't stand her. And uh, so these, these are, again, very simple, basic facts of life. But I think that they're terribly, terribly important in terms of understanding what actually makes us tick. Because uh, the reason why things are not as simple as I was saying a few minutes ago when I was saying, well, these are the sort of guiding lights of our lives, feelings, we, we, we have to follow what you know, it's, it's easier said than done because we are complex creatures with multiple needs. They conflict with each other. And, you know, that is that is then uh, over to us. The, you know, the, the, the basic needs are there. The feelings that announce those needs are there. But the business of learning how to how to meet them in ways that are reconcilable with each other. You know, there, there's where the great task of, of mental development, of, of, of emotional uh, development in particular lies. So that's exactly what was coming to mind as you were talking us through that. I'm thinking, so the couch versus going for a walk, the cookie versus the apple. There are short-term feelings. Oh, I want, I want that cookie. There are long-term plans or ideas or desires of, I want to be 
a healthier person long-term or be able to do things with her grandkids or whatever it might be. How do those conscious elements come to play? Because the, the natural is just go with the feeling. The conscious yeah. is go with the, in my words, better. Maybe somebody else wouldn't say it that way. You know, I would say in the end, it is uh, the, 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 the simple phrase, go with the feeling. Um, it's it still wins out, but let me just unpack this for a minute. Um, you, you, if you were to go with the feeling, you know, I uh, want to stay. I want to keep my my attachment object, as we call them. You know, the figure that you're attached to, the caregiver, is the prototype of that. I, I want to have this person's love forever and always. I want to keep them close to me. They warm. They make me feel warm and fuzzy. That's a feeling which is. You know, it's a good feeling to be guided by. That means I don't want to be separated from my caregiver. I'll stay with her. Uh, that's good. The other feeling that I mentioned a moment ago about, you know, if, if somebody's getting in my way and frustrating me and make me makes me feel irritated, eventually I'm going to stand up for myself and I say, no way, go away. You know, or I'm going to even wallop them, hit them. I'm afraid that's what's built into us. You know, it's called affective attack. It's a, a rage response that's built into all of us mammals. So, you know, the, the feeling there is you feel good when you have got rid of that, that frustrating obstacle. Now, the problem arises when you feel that both of those things toward one and the same person. And this is not an unusual state of affairs. So the question then becomes, well, how, do you, how can you then be guided by your feelings? Well, you have to find a way of resolving that conflict, which is also guided by feelings. In other words, if you can't do the extreme version of A or the extreme version of B, you've got to find some other compromise called C. And that, on you know, in the in the uh, 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 bigger picture, uh, is going to be more pleasurable. In other words, you don't have the the impulsive satisfaction uh, of getting rid of any frustrating impediment. Uh, you, you you nor do you have the absolute indulgence of always having you know your caregiver looking after you. But you find some sort of way in which you find a middle path, you know, in which you kind of get get what you need, if not what you want. If I may quote the Rolling Stones song, you know, you can't always get what you want. <laughs> Sing but, it. Uh, yeah, yeah. You can't always <laughs> get what you want. <laughs> uh, 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 you know, but 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 if you you know if you if you try, you'll you might get what you need. And uh, so this kind of this is this is really what emotional maturation is all about. It's learning about compromises, learning you can't have everything that you want, that if you try to have everything that you want in the short term, in the long term, you'll get less. You know, and so you need this is the whole business of pro-social. And this is also, by the way, if I may go back to one of the things we were talking about a moment ago, this is one of the reasons why play is so important for us mammals. Because we're social species, we live in groups, and uh, we can't all of us get what we want because we all want the same thing. And so the group would be in tatters if uh, what we were doing all the time was all fighting with each other, you know, trying to trying to be the the the, the top dog, the one who gets everything. So play uh, evolved uh, as a way of us um, navigating that very difficult uh, uh, territory. The fact that Yes, it's fine for me to get what I want, but I have to learn how to get what I want in relation to what the others want. You know, that's 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 a much more difficult task than just learning how to meet my own needs. I have to learn how to meet my own needs in relation to everyone else's needs. Right. And play is the vehicle whereby this is achieved. Um, the, the, there are all sorts of things we've learned about play. But if I'll just mention one or two of them, I mean, it's pretty obvious that what is distinguishing feature of play is it's not real. You know, if you if you're really hitting your brother, you're not playing with him; you're hitting him. So that's called rage. It's not called play. Uh, but if you're playing, say, cops and robbers with your brother, you know, then you both have agreed uh, to pretend to be adversaries. You know, you pretend you're locking up your brother, and then he gets a turn to lock you up. Uh, or he gets a turn to say, now we're going to play another game. So uh, there are two very important things there. The one is that it's as if it's pretend, it's not real. 
And why that's important is because it creates the safety within which you can practice all these things. So you can play at being mummy and baby, teacher and, and, and pupil, doctor and patient, cop and robber, and so on. You know, you can play at these different uh, emotional roles uh, without the price being real. You know, so it's, you, you, it's, it's a pretend play. You learn how to meet your, how to express your emotional needs uh, and do them in a way that, uh, re- that requires reciprocity with your playmate. And that's the second part of what I've just said about this ter- taking turns. So play is about pretend and it's about turn taking. If you watch animals playing and you watch humans playing in, in the park, you'll see it's all about this. You know, it's right. a, And as soon as it becomes too real, the play ends. You know, if you really, the one hurts the other one, then they refuse to play. And if the one's too dominant, in other words, isn't being mutual, then the other kid says, I'm not playing with you anymore. You're not being fair. And the game's over. And then the fun's over. So the fun, that's the biological reward for playing nicely. And this is one of the ways in which we learn to do this thing that I was, that we were both talking about a few minutes ago, this business of learning how to reconcile all your different emotional needs with each other and with the needs of others, which is so terribly important. So you're, you're creating a lot of rabbit trails for us here. I'm very curious. Any clues in your research to making more effective conscious choices? So coming back to that cookie or the couch or the apple or whatever I said earlier, looking at it, is there a way to tap into some of the things that you're discovering to say... I do want that apple long term. I I want the I want the cookie right now, but long term I really and I'm going to choose the apple. Are there any clues as to how we can do those types of things more effectively once we define them for our own lives? Obviously that's different for everyone. Yes. So um obviously in the in the context of our discussion I I have to limit myself to the headlines. So everything I'm saying to you because we're packing it all into one hour, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm just giving you the headlines. And, and I'm saying that, uh, you know, because I think it's important that our audience realizes there's a lot more to it. than Absolutely. You know, These are just the basics. And, and uh, there's, a, there's a vast literature on these things. And you mentioned my book. I obviously personally hope they'd read my book to get more details. But, um, but let's just stick with the, with the basics for now. I'd like to link the question you've just asked me to the topics we we were we were raising we were discussing near the beginning of this conversation about what is conscious and what is not conscious uh, i said that most of what we do uh, cognitively we actually do unconsciously right. most of our goal directed activity goes on unconsciously yeah. and and the, the evidence for that really is overwhelming right so if i can just take that uh, for, for granted then now let's link it to what you're asking uh, so most of what we do uh, which is which is designed to meet our needs. Otherwise, why are we doing it? This is the whole point of of mental life is learning how to meet our emotional needs. Most of the results of that learning um, get consolidated into what's called non-declarative memory. Uh, In other words, it's unconscious. So the technical term is non-declarative memory. Um, But but basically, uh, you, you could just say, these are things that you have learned that you don't remember you've learned. So they become automatic. Uh, and there are all sorts of good biological reasons why you don't want to have to keep all the balls in the air all the time. You know, so those problems which are solved, sure. uh, you automatize those solutions so that you can direct your rather limited capacity for conscious cognition uh, to those problems that actually need, uh, need those resources. Right. So that's the background to the answer I'm going to give to your, to your question. Unfortunately, and this is not me saying I'm glad it should be so, or, or, or I believe it should be so, or it's just is so. Unfortunately, we do not only automatize good solutions. We automatize all sorts of bad solutions using exactly the same brain systems. Uh, and perhaps the most, perhaps the most um, uh, uh, obvious examples are what, what we call habits, bad habits, you know, like addictions, for example. The, the 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 brain systems uh, that um, uh, that are the vehicles for addiction, uh, like the dopamine pathways of the brain and the opioid pathways of the brain, they're there for very good reasons. They do very important things. Uh, but you can 
you can hijack those systems um, by taking drugs uh, like cocaine in the case of the dopamine systems, like opiates in the case of the opioid systems, uh, which make use of exactly the same mechanisms uh, and get you addicted. In other words, you have automatic behaviors that these are your go-to solutions. This is how I mean. Well, you know, those systems, let me just focus on the opioid ones. The opioid crisis in the States is huge. You know, what is the opioid system of the brain for? Well, there are two functions. The, the most primitive function of the opioid systems is pain relief. You know, that obviously to have a brain system that deals with physical pain is not a bad idea. And to have, and then over and above that, a higher version of it is it mediates separation distress. So the pain, the physical pain um, of, of being hurt uh, is, 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 is ameliorated by opioids. And the emotional pain of being alone, of being separated, of 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 having lost uh, the 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 uh, attachment figures uh, whose love you so and attention you so crave, uh, that that too is ameliorated by opiates. So people take these drugs in order to in order to overcome those forms of pain, physical and emotional pain. Now, those are not good ways of solving those right. problems. Much right. better would be to actually deal with the underlying causes. And it's much harder to, to solve that, to get people to love you, you know, especially the, pe- the particular people whose love you want. Sure. It's hard work. You know, but this is, this is, this is, these are the basics of life. It's much easier to just take an opiate and have the illusion that, you know, you, that those needs have been met when, in fact, they have not been met. So what I'm saying is that we... We, I've, I've given one extreme example. Remember, Brad, I'm, I'm only talking sure, in headlines. Sure. Absolutely. So addictions are an example of bad habits. And I'm saying that there are many things, there are many ways in which we set about meeting our emotional needs, which are not the best ways that we come up with. Uh, and then we automatize those. And therefore, they, we're not conscious of what we're doing. Simple as that. So, you know, we, the, 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 the advice that I have uh, is that we have to bring those, we have to be, become aware of the way in which we're going about meeting those needs in order to bring them back to consciousness so that we can feel our way through those problems again. Now, I need to emphasize um, that most of these automatized uh, uh, behaviors, the, 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 the bad ones, uh, they are laid down early in our development. And the reason for that is manifold. Uh, first of all, uh, the foundations of anything are the most important, you know, the, the, the foundations sure, upon which yeah, you yeah. build all later versions. But also because when we're little, we are dependent, we are vulnerable. You know, we're, 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 we're not in a position uh, uh, to independently decide for ourselves how best to sort things out for ourselves. We're also ignorant of the ways of the world. We don't know what we don't know. You know, so we make, we are forced to make, uh, and we do make, Many decisions in childhood, which were the best we could come up with at the time, and they, they, that's I, I, you know we need to recognize that it's not as if we're just uh, you know uh, uh, defective uh, you know blighted creatures. It's that we face very difficult right. situations emotionally. We have to deal with all of these things. We're not all of us born into the best of circumstances. You know, and you've got to make do with what you've got, and you've got to make the best you can of the situation. So you come up with the best solution you can as a kid, as a as a child, or as a pubescent, or as an adolescent. You know, that's the that's the best you could do at the time. But then that solution gets automatized, and here's the crucial thing. You know, then you don't even know that that what you, this is what you're doing, and you don't know that what you're doing is meant to achieve this outcome. You know, you're just automatically doing it. It just is who you are. And had you the possibility of being able to make those choices again, now that you are no longer in that same situation you were in when you were little, you know, then you, you, you're you in a position to come up with better solutions than you could under those circumstances at that time. And so that's the that's really what it all boils down to, is that we, we the, all of the various forms of, emotional treatments, uh, I mean the psychological ones as opposed to the pharmacological ones. This is basically what they're, from from coaching through to psychotherapy, through to psychoanalysis and all, all of it, and not only 
uh, medical treatments. There's there's also many sort of folk remedies in the, the ways that people help each other. It's it's the, the, the I think that the crucial uh, ingredient here is to make to make yourself to help make the the person aware of how they, what they're doing, what their habits are, what their automatized ways the of responding are. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Drawing this to their attention, problematizing right. it. And and giving them an opportunity with your help and support and so on uh, to 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 come up with better ways of meeting those needs, which brings me full circle back to why it's so terribly important for us uh, to recognize what the basic needs of the human being are. You know that that knowledge gained only in the last twenty years or so, the, a proper understanding of the basic emotional circuitry of the human brain, um, and and therefore the basic emotional. Uh, feelings that dominate uh, and, and motivate our our our, our social lives, uh, which are the very foundations of our of our happiness, um, of things going well or badly for us. To have a scientific grip on what these motivating forces are is very valuable knowledge. We were having a conversation the other day. We've had BJ Fogg on. We've had Wendy Wood on. Very focused on what you're talking about of making it automatic, making, getting rid of the hurdles, making, connecting new habits to already established habits, et cetera, et cetera. Obviously there's a lot of value in that. That approach works. I love their research, but we were talking about there's something though with the motivational speaker, not long-term, the athlete who comes up and goes, you got this, come on, you can do it. That doesn't last. That doesn't create long-term behavior change, but sometimes it can be a spark. Is that where the feeling piece is? It's like it gets you revved up, even if it only lasts for five minutes, it gets you revved up enough to become conscious and then make other choices? Or how do you see those two working together? I I just get a sense they're not completely separate. We know the one works, but we got to get it started. Is there a connection there? Yes, I want to just spend a few minutes separating out two aspects of what you've just said. I'm going to start with the first aspect, which I think is the more explicit aspect of what you're saying. The way that I look on it is that you must remember these are deeply automatized response patterns. You show the person once, you know, can you see that what you're doing here, you know, that this thing, you do this over and again, can you see it's meant to be achieving that? Can you see it's not achieving that? Can you see that's why mm, you're suffering mm, in this way? And the yes. person says, oh, my word, yes. you're right. You know, yes. That doesn't mean that they've changed. It means that they there and then they saw the truth of it. Uh, but don't forget, these are automatized response patterns. So, you know, that's not going to change what's automatized. It's going to make them see, yes, now I can see that. But that doesn't take away a lifetime of of, of uh, consolidation of of what you've learned. So this is how it works. You say to the person, you know, you did it again. You know, even though you did it, and you did it again, and there you did it again, and here you did it again, and they see it. They see the truth of it each time. That leads to them slowly generalizing until eventually they're able to say to you, "I did it again." You know, you don't need to point mm, it out. Say, yeah. Oh God, I did it again. Look there, I did it again. And this applies to. Um, the living of our lives as much as to the doing of our jobs, as much as to the playing of our sports and whatever, you know, it, it, it applies across the board. We're only talking about the same brain mechanisms here. But ultimately, uh, when the person gets to the point where it's not that they're saying, I did it again, um, damn it, uh, but rather they're saying, I'm doing it again while they're doing it. Mm, mm. At that point, they don't need your help anymore. Because at that point, it's become something that they have voluntary control over. It's something that, so the old impulse is always there, you know, um, and it's going to repeat itself because that's how these brain systems work. They just repeat. Um, but but uh, by this, uh, what we call working through, uh, you know, which so takes a bit of time, you know, this motivational speaker thing that you spoke of, it's like, yeah, yeah, I see it. What this guy's saying is true. It's true. It's true. Well, yeah, you see it in that moment, but it's not you. It's the motivational speaker who sees it, and then you're borrowing that insight for all that motivation for that moment. Right. You can, you know, the sort of thing I'm talking about, uh, you're generalizing to other spheres. You know, this is how it works. Eventually, uh, you know, over time, it becomes your own actual knowledge uh, uh, that 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 you aware of while you're doing it, and then you can change your mind. That's what we mean by ownership, you know, right. of your own of your own um, uh, uh, life. 
Um, now, but I want to do, I said I want to say two things, even though I know we have so little time left, which is this. It's that when you have things in consciousness, this also has its downside. It means you're in a state of uncertainty. Um, and, you know, we, we don't want to be in a state of uncertainty. So once you have resolved a problem, you know, then you must put it out of mind. So, so right. automaticity is not in and, in and of itself a bad thing. It's only exactly. if you automatize solutions which don't the wrong work. ones. So, yeah, yeah. Right. So again, you know, if I can just use the analogy of sport, I don't want to overemphasize the importance of sport, but it's important. Uh, the you know, if you're a tennis player or a golfer, you know, you don't want to be thinking about your strokes all the time. It, it, it undermines. Or if you're a musician, the same thing applies. You know, you need to just go with the flow. But that's that you can only do when you have faced the difficulties in your in your game right. and uh, or in your performance you know, and then resolve them then you can go back to this uh, the, the automaticity so automaticity in and of itself is actually the ideal it means problem solved you know exactly. now i can just hand over to to these unconscious mechanisms uh, so it's it's a temporary discomfort that's required uh, and it's against resistances that we look at these things that we don't want to look at uh, but, you know, it's short-term pain for long-term gain. Last question. As I was reading your book, my mind started thinking about the potential difference between free will, which would be our theoretical ability to make a voluntary choice, and freed, with a D on the end, will. The available energy to devote to making that voluntary choice. Is that consistent with your discussion about free energy at all? Yes. So I think that some of our listeners or probably many of them won't, won't quite get to this last bit of what we're talking about, because there's, there's much, as I said, much in that book, um, which, which is complicated detail that I, I can't um, Absolutely. convey Understand. in just this, this one hour. Uh, so you're referring to the, the, what we understand about the underlying energetics of all of this. And uh, that's also really valuable knowledge uh, to be able to reduce as we, now are in terms of some of the basic uh, mechanisms of emotional feeling, we're able to reduce them to pretty simple lawful equations because it's not complicated. You know, we, if feelings are, are there to guide our needs uh, when we're in the zone, we've, uh, as opposed to out of the zone, it's a measure of how far you are from where you need to be. And, you know, ultimately there, there, there are laws there that can be, that can be reduced to mathematics, just like everything else in nature. So as we, that was Galileo who said, the book of nature is written in the language of mathematics. Uh, and uh, so, you know, ultimately this is what we aspire to, but we're very far from being there across the board when it comes to the sorts of things that you and I are talking about. So when it comes to free will, what you're uh, raising there, it's a very complicated topic. And clearly, if I could just link it to everything else we've spoken about, I've spoken time and again in this hour about the importance of problematizing your decision-making by bringing it back to consciousness so that you have choice as opposed to just ought. So that clearly relates to free will, the ability to make a choice as opposed to being compelled uh, to just ought automatically, stereotypically right. spin out the same old response. Um, so this business of free will uh, it's, it's an enormous philosophical conundrum, but it clearly links with what we've just talked about. And I want to point out just a couple of things. One of them is how it links to feeling. That Because I'm talking about the mechanism sure. uh, of consciousness being allowing yourself to feel your way through the problem rather than, rather than um, uh, uh, giving it over to automaticity. So feelings uh, guide our actions. Uh, and to go against that, you know, to be able to bring the thing to consciousness, to, to allow yourself to feel. And remember, I said that there are resistances involved. But how this relates to the mathematics of the free energy principle that you were alluding to is that ultimately the, the feelings uh, 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 um, limit free will. So there, there, is a, um, there, is, there are degrees of freedom uh, in this free will. So you know, theoretically, we all have free will. We can absolutely choose to do anything. You can do the most idiotic thing against all of the rules that, that I've been talking about. You know, you can jump off a bridge. Uh, you, you, you have the right to do that. That's your free will. But fortunately, feelings constrain these sorts of things. So, so they put limits on the degrees of freedom. 
So if I can just use one quick analogy to try to concretize what I'm saying. You know, in the biblical story of Daniel, who goes into the lion's den, mm-hmm. uh, that's an act of free will. It's, it's, it's an obvious act of free will because normally one wouldn't do that. But Daniel decides he's going to do it. Now, therein lies the whole of the rule. That Yes, Daniel chooses to do it, but most of us would not. In other words, the probabilities are that we will not go into lion's dens because it makes us feel scared. So that's the function of feeling. Feeling says you're deviating from where you need to be. Where you need to be is safe. You're going into this situation, which is not safe, and so you have to do it against the, the feeling. And uh, so that's that feeling places constraints on free will. So what I'm saying in a nutshell is free will is actually probabilistic. It's not entirely free, that, that, that there are laws, um, probabilistic laws, which ultimately constrain it. And in this sense, yes, free will can be linked to freed will in the, in the sense that you're linking it to the free energy principle, which is really a, a theory about choice based in statistical and, and mechanics, which we don't have time to go into. Okay. Dr. Solms is tremendous. Thank you so much. I know you're on the road. Appreciate you popping in from the UK. You're normally in South Africa with Dr. Noakes, who we had on previously, but thank you so much. This is wonderful. Thanks very much indeed. It's been great to meet you, and I'm very pleased to be on the on the same thing as, as Tim Noakes. He's a great guy. Thanks, Brad. All right, very take care. good to meet you. Bye-bye now. Thanks for tuning into the number one podcast for health and wellness coaching, and thanks for allowing us to be a regular part of your week as we all look to write a story that improves with each passing day. If you're an employer, EAP, or wellness service provider looking to integrate meaningful, best-in-class health and wellness coaching into your current platform or services, Catalyst Coaching 360 is your solution. As we launch our 17th year as a leader in health and wellness coaching, we make it easy and affordable to support and enhance the physical, emotional, and mental health of employees in any setting. And our plug-and-play integration allows you to launch almost overnight with transparent pricing that allows you to move away from the traditional pay-and-pray pricing that coaching often involves. If you're curious, all the details are available on our new website, CatalystCoaching360.com, or give me a call directly. We can talk about it. My number is 303-521-1570. That's CatalystCoaching360.com, or my personal number, 303-521-1570. And now it's time to be a Catalyst. This is Catalyst Coaching 360, Dr. Brad Cooper. Make it a great rest of your week, and I'll speak with you soon on the next episode of the Catalyst 360 podcast, or maybe over on the YouTube coaching channel.